Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Public Policy podcast. I am Tevi Troy, I'm your host. Each week we look at a new book in the public policy arena and discuss its implications for the broader public policy debates that are facing this country. This week we're going to be talking to David Fife, who has compiled an edited volume called Teaching America, the Case for Civic Education. David apparently came up with this idea in his dorm room in Columbia to promote civic education, and in this book, he has come up with contributions from a former Supreme Court justice, multiple senators, a former cabinet secretary. So it's an impressive group of luminaries all talking about this issue of how to promote civic education. In the podcast, I'm going to ask David about how he became such a precocious young fellow and how he came up with this idea and what we can learn about civic education from reading his book. With no further ado, here is David Fight. Hello and welcome to the podcast, David Fight. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, sure. Thank you for joining us and talking about your book, Teaching America. I'd love to just get right into it and ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came at a relatively young age to write this book. <laughs> sure. Well, I, uh, I'm an op-ed editor now at the Wall Street Journal, where I edit op-eds and, and write uh, editorials uh, mostly on education and foreign policy. And my... Uh, my interest in the in, in the book and in the, the book's genesis um, dates back, depending how you look at it, either either you know, many years or about three to uh, toward the end of college, when some uh, some friends and I, uh, not in any organized way, came across the, the kind of staggering data about civic illiteracy. Uh, what, can can I stop you? That is, that is not usually what I envision going on in a college dorm room with guys, kids sitting around and talking about the staggering data about civic illiteracy. It, 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 it's true, and, and, and that's, that's obviously an abbreviated version of the history. But basically, uh, partly the, the Wall Street Journal, I think, deserves, uh, deserves some credit. When I was an intern here, I was able to, to do, write an article on this subject, and that furthered an interest. I think the interest goes back, though, uh, probably for me to to family history. Um, in, 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 my, in my house growing up, uh, one of my uh, grandparents uh, had survived the Holocaust and come to the U.S. And, and very much lived the American dream. My mother was born in the Soviet Union and, uh, and lived in Baku and in Moscow uh, until, her, until her 20s. And so for us, in, in the house, there, there was a, a major sense of uh, of, of interest in and gratitude for the, the kind of political institutions that, that make our country what it is. And so I think that's probably, to give you a fuller answer, what really sets the roots. And that's what I think got me interested in the subject uh, even as long ago as, as, as high school, because it was, it was always uh, an interest, even if perhaps I couldn't articulate it at the time. It was an interest, you know, what makes the uh, our country and its and its political system as uh, as good as it is and what makes us you know as fortunate as we are to be citizens and so then when when I started seeing again as far back as as high school uh, the statistics about civic illiteracy about uh, students uh, and adults but students in particular inability to know basic uh, details of American history or basic aspects of how the democratic process works, that always struck me as, as interesting and, and disturbing. Uh, and then to fast forward uh, a bit to, to college, this was about 2008, 
2009, the data were not getting any better. In some ways, they were getting worse. So, for example, uh, history, U.S. history, I mean, as, as bad in some ways as uh, as the data are about American students' education achievement in general, the data are actually worse for civic education, for uh, proficiency scores in U.S. history and in civics. U.S. history, in contrast to all the other subjects tested by the federal government, is the only subject in which more than half of high school seniors can't demonstrate even basic knowledge. Uh, I think 90% are not proficient. 60% of high school seniors can't name the half century when the Civil War occurred or and can't identify basic symbols of the civil rights movement. So when when I was in college and 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 seeing this this data all the more, it did become an interest, perhaps a peculiar one, of of my uh, my of some friends uh, and and mine. And actually, we were in school at at Columbia, which I think contributed a bit to our interest because uh, being in school at Columbia actually I think forces students to ask questions about kind of broadly speaking the relationship between universities and educational institutions and, and civic life more broadly. Uh, why, why Columbia in particular? Because uh, there are basically two reasons. The first is that Columbia has a, a core curriculum which still focuses largely on, on white, what, what, what might be called in shorthand the great books, which the core curriculum is basically uh, in, in itself, it not only dictates the much of the of the education for Columbia students, but it's a message about what students in a certain you know civic community ought to be studying. It dates back to after World War One actually when given the kind of new world that Americans met after World War One, Columbia got together and, and decided that they needed to establish this core curriculum to give students a basic literacy in uh, Western civilization and, and American democracy, basically. So on one hand, you have you have that as a major part of your education. On the other hand, uh, at Columbia, it seems eternally there's there's one controversy or another that raises questions again about the relationship between educational institutions and civic life. So for for me during during my tenure, it was the fall 2007 invitation of Iranian President Ahmadinejad to speak at Columbia. I thought it was uh, it was a very uh, it was it was in very poor judgment that the university chose to extend this invitation and and bestow its prestige upon uh, upon Ahmadinejad. But on both sides of the issue, it raised questions about what role a university, you know, this particular university, but also universities in general, ought to play. In uh, in the civic culture, and all of that just in, increased my interest in the subject, and that is one of the subjects that this book, uh, Teaching America, deals with, because it deals not only with K to 12 education, which is its focus, but also with higher education, and it gets into specifics that, that I'm sure we'll discuss. But in a certain broad sense, it's really about the relationship between education and citizenship, and about how healthy American citizenship is cultivated, not only by schools and universities, but by families, non-school organizations, and others.
You know, um, you mentioned the Ahmadinejad, the Iranian president, coming to uh, Colombia, and he was here in New York again this fall, and the situation was a little different this time. Can you talk a little bit about what happened on this visit, and does it indicate any change in how you view these, uh, the, the issue of civic education? Uh, do you mean specifically with regard to Colombia? Yeah, I mean, I believe he didn't speak this time. And it was right. you know, and it was sort of a, a big deal that the you know, last time he spoke, this time he didn't speak. Does it mean that Colombia's you know, woken up and smelled some smelled some coffee? Uh, I, I wish I wish I could I could say so. Uh, I, I think I think not. Uh, I think the, the true answer is we don't know. We we don't know all the considerations that that went into the decision the first time or the last time. We don't know what what might be going on inside the head of of the University of Columbia University president. Lee Bollinger, but I think that uh, I think that it, it was it was kind of a one-off. I, I think it was justifiably an embarrassment to the university when it happened in 2007. Uh, I think students have have some sense that it might have hurt the university's brand and perhaps hurt its fundraising ability, but that's very hard to know and, and very hard to quantify. Uh, I think what it mostly did was um, was give a large number of people, a certain identification with Columbia. And Columbia is a great place. I'm very grateful that, that I was able to be there. I think the core curriculum is great. There's a lot to recommend the place. And yet, with the Ahmadinejad invitation, certainly Columbia earned itself um, embarrassment. And, uh, and I think that it was, it was unusual enough and enough of a circus even if you didn't oppose the invitation um, as I did and as, and as some others did, that I wouldn't imagine Columbia would go out of its way to, to create the circus uh, yet again, simply because we'd probably just see a reprise of what happened in 2007, which was that President Ahmadinejad gave a meandering, uh, conspiracy-laden talk. Uh, the university president gave a, a very actually hostile introduction, and, uh, and then the debate went on from there. It wasn't a particularly rich exchange, and so... Uh, so it's probably not going to happen again. And unfortunately, though, I don't think that necessarily reflects much about uh, you know, major philosophical changes at, at Columbia. No, it's a shame. One can hope, right? I remember that uh, introduction, and I thought that I was opposed to having Ahmadinejad come to Columbia. But I thought, if you're going to invite the guy, why then give a rude introduction to it? It didn't say much about American manners either way. That, that, that was my feeling, too. Um, so... Getting back to the book, uh, you put together a pretty impressive group of contributor, tw contributors, 23 of them. I, I saw some senators, a former secretary of education, some White House aides, including some I, with whom I worked, a, um, and probably most prominently a Supreme Court justice. And they were on the left and on the right, so there wasn't a real uh, political bias to us. How did you assemble these folks? And when you went at them, did any of them just come at you with completely unreadable or unsubmittable materials? Well, uh, the, the, one of the main driving ideas of the book was that you know, I and, and, and this, this circle of, of friends, and including my college roommate, hardly had discovered the civic education problem. The sort of data that, that I mentioned earlier and, and the broader problem is one that is you know, certainly on the radar of, of, of some people, and there are, there are some organizations and, and politicians and think tank scholars and the like who do some very good work on the subject. So what we wanted to do, the, the, the driving idea behind the book was to draw on that existing good work, highlight it, but also to bring together in one place a concentrated roster of 
expert, interesting, creative, and prominent voices who, by coming together in one place, as in this book, which, as you mentioned, has, has 23 essays, would shine light on this civic literacy crisis and hopefully do so in a way that's, that's even more effective than the, the usual kind of commentary on the subject that, that comes out of various corners. And so the, the, the hope was to bring together um, people from right, left, and center, as you mentioned, from various uh, you know, corners of life, from, from public life and from the academy and from the charter school world and you know, policy wonks, journalists, and, and others. And, uh, and in fact, it is extremely gratifying how, how it all came together. Um, I think one of the lessons is that everyone has an email address these days and everyone can be reached, uh, something for which I'm, I'm very grateful. But basically, for all those you mentioned, from Justice Stanford O'Connor to Senator John Kyle to former Senator Bob Graham and former Education Secretary Rod Page and all the others, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that they were willing to sign on to, to uh, you know, as we discussed, what started out as, a, as, as not only an amateur effort, but a, but a dorm room effort. And, uh, and working with them all was, was a pleasure. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, wondering if any essays did end up on the cutting room floor. You don't have to say the names, but I'm just curious. Did you ask for 30 and get 23, or how did that work? Uh, no, perhaps amazingly enough, um, I mean, certainly we, uh, you know, our batting average in terms of, of inviting uh, inviting potential authors to write was, was not above 500. It was probably, we probably reached out to 75 and, 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 and about a third ended up coming through and, 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 and doing so, but all those who, uh, who committed to writing actually did so. And, and for some, it was quite a drawn out process because um, I, I initially started reaching out uh, almost three years ago and then, uh, and then assembled the roster over the next year, then got the book under contract, then began the writing and editing process, which while the project was about a three-year project, the writing and editing process took only about 15 months. And so, so the authors uh, stuck around for the duration, and were were responsive, and I think really produced great work. I'm, I'm extremely proud of the product. You said we a couple of times. Did you have a collaborator on the project with you? Uh, so, I, uh, in, in in college, I, there was a, a small group of us who had actually worked together on um, on a, a student journal at Columbia that's, that's still still is published uh, called The Current. And so the, the initial, uh, basically, I, I was the editor of that magazine. When I finished it, uh, I came up with the contours of this project and, um, and worked at first with a number of, um, of colleagues from there on, on fleshing out the ideas. Uh, unfortunately, basically, as we moved forward and once graduation came, which was in, in 2009, um, uh, the others, uh, including uh, my, my closest collaborator, um, Evan Dart, weren't able to, to, to finish it together. Um, so, but, but it was certainly uh, an effort where I, you know, I, I obviously the, the main quality, the main value of the book is, is the author's contributions, but then also in terms of the, the curating and the design, um, I had some invaluable help from, um, from friends like, uh, like Evan and the others whom, as, as we discussed, had these perhaps curious conversations in college over, uh, over the civic literacy problem. Yeah, I'll t I want to talk about some of the specific contributions in a moment, but but first, I, I think right now we're going through kind of a national 
conversation about the meaning of civic engagement. We saw the Tea Party in the last few years. Now recently we're seeing Occupy Wall Street. How do those movements, those kind of grassroots, to the extent they are grassroots movements, that are trying to change things in the U.S. Sometimes we know what they're trying to change, sometimes we don't. But how do they fit into your preconceptions about civic education in the U.S.? Are they a good sign or a bad sign? And do they say that we've got a lot more work to do or uh, that maybe things, maybe people are more engaged than we anticipated? Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very good question. I've been, I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And I think, I think it's hard to, to generalize. I think that in a certain sense, um, when when we see movements like this, and I think certainly in the case of the Tea Party, just because it's, it's clearly uh, you know rather more sustained than I think the, the fate of Occupy Wall Street and its, its sustainability and size and scope is still to be determined. But the Tea Party has clearly had a major a major effect on on national politics. Uh, I, I think I think these are these are are healthy signs of of the democratic process. Uh, I think that. One of the one of the interesting things uh, when it comes to the, the kind of the ideas of the book here is that there is uh, there's absolutely a crisis that needs addressing when you see the civic literacy data that exists. Uh, but the point is not to say that you know we're at the edge of an abyss or that we've already fallen over into it and that this is a uh, in other words, what, what, what the book tries to do is is head off a crisis that might be that might be to come. I think that those who who speak perhaps in more hyperbolic terms about uh, how you know there's there's no democracy anymore in America, or it's plutocrats running the show, or these, these sorts of things, I, I, that that that's that's certainly not the, the take of the book. It's not mine. I think though there is a major point to be made about how the American political system, as as fortunate as it is, and, and, and as flexible to, to have, you know, changes in it like, you know, the eight years of George W. Bush, the election of Barack Obama, who who uh, you know stood for uh, a certain repudiation of that term, then the Tea Party, and all of this back and forth, I think, uh, has a lot of healthy healthy vigor to it, uh, but. In the long term, the American political experiment won't won't perpetuate itself willy-nilly. I think one of the main points of the book is that it really takes conscious effort, and, and the conscious effort requires educating future generations to know the history, to understand the system, to have a sense of civic identity and civic community, and to have some appreciation for the the amazing uh, American experiment in in self-government. And, and those things take concentration and cultivation and and years. And so I think that you know, looking at it in any one snapshot doesn't give the full picture because this is something that has to be done in every generation. And one of the things that, that I feel very fortunate to, to perhaps be, be contributing to is, is making the call for for the next generation, you know, for, for, for people who are uh, closer to my age. And uh, because it is something that has to be done consciously. And I think that to get to the more specific question, perhaps, about the Tea Party and, and Occupy Wall Street, I think in, in both cases, there are uh, the, the kind of positive signs that I've alluded to, and though there are some negative ones. I think that, uh, I think that one of 
things that, that I consider a major part of, of civic education that actually doesn't get talked about very much, even by the advocates of civic education, is a kind of, of historical and moral perspective that I think a healthy citizenry has. And so, for example, when whatever the issue is, when um, politicians or commentators on television are constantly invoking Hitler or the Stalinist Soviet Union to describe the uh, standard disagreements and back and forth of American politics, it, I think it shows a lack of, of historical perspective. I think it, it, it cheapens the debate, but what it, what it cheapens especially is the historical memory of things like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which ought to be clear in, in, in people's minds, in, in, in the minds of citizens. And so to do that is, is, is I think, another expression of, of civic illiteracy. And, uh, and I, think, I think we do see that to some degree in these protest movements, and, and that's, that's not a good thing. Uh, we saw it with regard to elements of, of uh, controversies during the, the Bush years, um, comparisons of Guantanamo Bay to the Soviet Gulag, um, and then and, and, and elsewhere. And I think that there, uh, I, I see there a relationship to civic education in the sense that uh, a, a proper uh, a, a proper understanding of history would would draw awfully stark lines between disagreements that Americans have and can play out in our political system and, and the precedence of, of Nazi Germany and, and communist uh, Stalinist Russia. Yeah, the uh, reductio ad Hitlerum is obviously a frequent problem in our democracy today. But your answer about democracy not continuing willy-nilly reminds me of a comment or a quote I saw in Senator Bob Graham's essay on pages 63 and 64 of your book where he quotes former University of Chicago President Robert Maynard Hutchins, who said the death of democracy is not likely to be an assassination from ambush. It will be a slow extinction from apathy, indifference, and undernourishment. And I found that a – I almost shuddered when I read that quote. I think it's, he's spot on. And uh, you, you see many indications of that apathy, even when you see uh, resurgence of, uh, of interest in movements like Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street today. Absolutely. So I, I think that's right. I think that it's, it's a, um, not only is it something that I think should make people shudder, but uh, it also uh, it also makes the makes this the work of making the case for civic education perhaps tougher because this is a a, a, a broad um, perhaps somewhat abstract problem. It's there isn't a single and immediate solution that can be pointed to where if you flip the switch the problem will go away. It is something that because of exactly what what uh, what Robert Maynard Hutchins said, um, if it happens, it'll happen slowly. Once there's recognition that it has happened, it might be too late. So it has to be countered really constantly, and 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 again in every generation. And so so what this book hopes to do is is to sound the alarm and lay out a reform agenda for this generation and, and future ones. Yeah, and another piece that uh, I found really moved me and I thought was the most moving piece in the whole book was the Juan Williams essay on assimilation, how he said he came from a, uh, I guess, a non-English speaking uh, family and how important English was and assimilation into the U.S. was and how that doesn't seem to be of value anymore. And he, he's 
he's very worried about other people who come to the U.S. without strong English skills, uh, like I guess his mother did, and and will never assimilate because they won't be encouraged to do so. That's right, and I, I, I agree. It's uh, it, it is uh, it's an extremely moving essay. He writes of of coming from Panama on a banana boat, actually, um, and uh, and with 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 his mother uh, and and siblings, and uh, and coming to New York and then growing up an immigrant in New York. And and the case he makes is both for the imperative of of integration and assimilation and the importance of education in that process. And he describes how this idea of assimilation is uh, in some quarters very strongly under attack and that's uh, and, and, and the danger of that. And I think that here again, we, we see an interesting um, kind of aspect of how this problem needs to be looked at and considered uh, Constantly, because I think a lot of people, um, you know, America has a great history of of immigration and assimilation, and and America is a is a nation of immigrants. It's it's uh, you know strengthened immeasurably by it, and uh, and yet that shouldn't be cause for complacency. Um, not because there's uh, you know there are these you know vast differences between immigrants today and immigrants 50 or 100 years ago or anything you know, inborn, uh, but simply because uh, the fact that, it's, that, it's, uh, that something has happened in the past doesn't mean that it will necessarily translate into the future. So the case that, that Juan Williams makes uh, for the importance of education in assimilation and uh, especially for, um, for Hispanic immigrants uh, these days, given that, that they make up the largest uh, immigrant group, and given some, some um, modern characteristics that do apply today and didn't in the past. So, for example, um, first, the proximity of the U.S. to um, you know, places like Mexico, where immigrants are today coming from, which, which wasn't true when immigration was from uh, Europe, for example. Uh, also, technological features like the Internet uh, that make it a lot easier to both stay connected back home and perhaps in the U.S. for immigrant communities to, to remain insular and, uh, and, and, and focused on ex- perhaps exclusively on, on, uh, on themselves. The, the, the argument that, that Juan Williams makes is that uh, these things ought to be noticed and, and taken into, into consideration when policymakers and educators think about immigration and, and assimilation. Um, but one of the things that I think does make the piece so powerful is that it, it's also such an endorsement of immigration and of its value and, and, its, and its virtue, but it's a reminder that, uh, that, that you know, we ought all along the way to keep in mind the importance of cultivating civic community and, and a sense of, of American citizenship. And, um, and, and that, that, that sort of integration is work that schools have to take up and families and community organizations and, uh, and policymakers ought to encourage it as well. Yeah, I, I know we don't have time, unfortunately, to go through all of the essays today, although they're all worth discussing. I did want to br- tie together a thread that I saw in two of them, uh, in the essay by Alan Dershowitz about the need to know rights, and in the essay by uh, Mark Bauerlein about how little students know. 
there was this uh, unifying theme of pop culture in there. And Dershowitz has the comment about uh, the Seinfeld episode about how Americans all know their rights if they're arrested because um, you know they, they saw it on Beretta. And so you know, cops don't even have to read. You have the right to remain silent. And they just say, oh, do you, you know, did you ever watch Beretta? Then get in the car, which is a joke exactly. from Seinfeld. Um, and then Bauerlein talks about how 30 years ago uh, there were a couple of choices on TV. And uh, he even makes a joke about how it, it would have seemed cruel uh, to, to students today. Um, but because there were so few choices, if the news came on at 7 o'clock, then the students or kids were aware of the news and more aware of what was going on. Now, since you've got Disney Channel and On Demand and, and YouTube, you've got choices all the time that are the programming that you as a child want to see, then you have no interest and you will never see anything other than the things that you as a kid are interested in. And that makes it harder for you to get a kind of uh, civic education by osmosis in the home. I, I think that's right. I think that... Uh I mean, I, I didn't take, um, for example, I didn't take Mark Bauerlein's point um, about this this uh, kind of pop culture and media glut to, to necessarily be a case against it. In other words, I, I don't think it's, it, it, that it's necessarily saying that we were all better off when there were only three television networks. Um, but, but I think, again, it, it's another point about how um, as we, you know, progress and, and have you know, new media offerings and all the rest of it, this this matter of the kind of continual process and challenge of cultivating informed, educated citizens, citizens who feel enfranchised and empowered and that America is a land of opportunity with a political system that, that should be appreciated, that kind of work needs to continue. And and I think that uh, the, the broader point about, about culture is is interesting because I think that uh, this book uh, focuses on on the education system. It, it talks, in addition, about the role of non-school organizations, and and um, but but it focuses more than not on schools because when it comes to public policy, that's that's the main lever that that that, that we have. But I think that the the effect of uh, of on uh, the effect of the culture on civic identity should certainly not be underestimated. And actually one, I mean, there, again, it's, it's, it's very hard to quantify. And I think there are some steps in, in the right direction, but there are also certainly some steps in, in the wrong direction, some of which are talked about in the book. So for example, uh, it, it's rare that, that any aspect of the debate over American history, or certainly American historians, it's rare that, that they would become cultural icons. And yet someone like Howard Zinn, the radical historian, who um, who wrote the People's History of the United States is an absolute cultural icon. His his book is uh, I think has sold two million copies and um, is probably the most read uh, work of history, especially among high school and college students. It's assigned throughout uh, high schools and colleges. And yet, as Michael Kazin, the Georgetown University historian and the editor of Dissent Magazine, writes in in Teaching America, Zinn's history is propagandistic, tendentious, it's, it's history as cynicism. It's, uh, uh, and, and there, it amazingly um, has, has really kind of penetrated the culture. And so uh, you know, Matt Damon very frequently talks about Howard Zinn. Uh, I think he's involved now with a 10-part series on, on one of the networks, I think Showtime perhaps, uh, History of the U.S. as told by Howard Zinn. Um, 
uh, Oliver Stone as well, uh, I think, is involved with the project and and has has you know brought to the wider culture and the pop culture um, certain takes on American history that that uh, do uh, I think derive from a certain civic illiteracy and they and they further it and and that's something that that is um, I think in those cases troubling and, and worth um, worth arguing arguing back against I think the fact that it's uh, in Hollywood is, is not is certainly not a reason to to ignore it and, and to the contrary it actually might be a reason why uh, to look at it more closely because as much as we might focus on schools and classrooms because that's where government policy might have an effect um, actually you know if we're talking about what kinds of influences affect the 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 thoughts and the and the the sentiments of of citizens, I think there's no question that, that, that TV, movies, and the like have have an enormous role and arguably a bigger one. Yeah, I think you can't understate the, the cultural arguments. And and you, as we were talking about a little bit earlier with the the choices, uh, while I personally am happy that Happy Days is not the only choice on in the evenings, and I can watch whatever show I want of whatever sophistication I want, and and I I do, um, and it would be shows that I would never want my kids to watch. Uh, I recognize that there's sort of a loss of unification, right? I mean, there was something going on when everybody watched Happy Days or everybody watched All in the Family. There was there was more of a common culture in the U.S. and there was more of a common set of knowledge. I'm not saying that those were the greatest shows. I think if you watch them again on YouTube or on DVD, you'll be disappointed, if you, especially if you have fond memories from your youth. But there was a time when people all shared a set of ideas and, and set of values, and I think we're more... Um, uh, or we're more atomistic now, more individualized. Absolutely, and, and I think I think that's a major challenge for for anyone who cares about about this problem and about about cultivating a citizenry that that holds uh, certain ideas and, and feelings uh, in common. And I, I think actually, I mean, there 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 are even more places where we could point to that that, that, that demonstrate the kind of atomization that you talked about. Uh, it's seen it's seen in the media certainly. It's also true that, um, you know, some generations ago there were there were institutions that that, that played major roles in uh, in assimilation, for example, um, you know, the role of, of labor unions in in cities, for one. Um, I think you know religious institutions, um, the military, especially when when there were uh, you know major mobilizations and, and 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 certainly the draft. And obviously, it's not a case for bringing back the draft, but the fact is it's, it's, it's yet another element that adds to the, the, the atomization that, that you've talked about, which both, um, I think, underscores the challenge in general, and it leaves the schools as, um, as probably the, the remaining major institution in society that touches such a huge number of, of citizens, almost all, but certainly in the public schools. And and that's why you know given given the the kind of decline in the in the cultural influence and the civic influence of um, of, of institutions like the military and labor unions uh, in many cases for for very good reasons we can all be fortunate for the fact is one of the uh, one of the byproducts of that decline is is this atomization that that families and schools and hopefully the culture as well will will pick up to to kind of answer and and to to help um, to help with that cultivation of civic identity that's fallen off elsewhere. I'm so glad you mentioned labor unions because it really leads into my next question. I mean, I guess implicit in the whole idea of your book is that we need to get schools to teach 
more civic education. And there's some people say you should do it by school choice, and some people say you get more university involvement. Uh, others uh, say that that it's important uh, not to have too many strictures on schools, like No Child Left Behind, that uh, force students to learn uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but not necessarily civic education. But if people are to take up your premise, which is to have the schools teach more civic education. Aren't you, as someone who's been very critical of the teachers' unions, a little nervous about having civic education and really a political education in the hands of the NEA, the UFT, and the AFT, which don't necessarily share that same view of America that you laid out in the beginning in your, you know, your patriotic household? Uh, well, the, 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 the short answer... Uh, might be that yeah, I, I, th I think the right answer is that it, 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 it's a challenge and yet it's a it's a reality. In other words, I think that uh, I mean one of the things that I'm, I'm very proud of in the book is that it highlights uh, some really amazing and and promising developments in the education world that are uh, outside the teachers unions and so it focuses on on the charter sector with the KIPP schools, uh, which is the, the the national network of more than a hundred. Um, very high achieving charter schools and the democracy prep public schools, which is a, a great network of schools uh, here in, in Harlem. And, and one of the, the main things the book does is, is shine light on how the absence of uh, teachers union contracts and, and um, district bureaucratic regulations uh, in these charter schools allows them the autonomy to innovate and in some cases, uh, especially at Democracy Prep, to innovate in a way that focuses on civic education in, uh, in a really healthy way with demonstrable success. So I think one thing the book does is, um, I think, reckon with the, the very basic point that if one is calling for education reform, uh, oftentimes having to do an end around around the unions, which, uh, which stand against uh, almost all reforms, is is necessary, and, and when that's been done, often, as in the case of these charter schools, there there are, are really promising successes that we hope will be, um, you know, looked at, expanded, and uh, and, and and taken to, to broader scale. That being said, as you mentioned, I think there's just no doubt that the uh, that if, if if what if what we want is to change civic education broadly and nationwide. It'll require the um, you know, the involvement and the cooperation of of, of uh, major teachers unions because that's that's where the teachers are. And as to the point about the political education and, and the uh, in other words, I think the problem the, the reason that's a challenge is simply because unions, by their nature, don't uh, they don't like to innovate. They they don't like um, I think some some accountability measures that might be helpful for civic education and things like that. I think the political problem is secondary. One of the things that, that the book deals with is is this question of to what extent civic education is is political or would get tied up over politics. Um, one essay, for example, that um, that is very interesting is by Glenn Reynolds, the law professor, who is the independent blogger, and the whole essay is about the distinction between healthy civic education and indoctrination. And what he lays out are, are, are basic um, kind of warning signs for a politicized classroom and, and a basic common denominator for what would be good and healthy and non-political civic education that would serve a major civic purpose without 
getting into politics and getting into any any um, political dispute that some people might have with the unions or that the unions might have with someone else. I think that I think that common denominator is is substantial, and uh, and there's a lot that can be done to make civic education better before we even get into the realm of of true political uh, disputes. And and let, let let let's hope we can do that. And, and if political disputes come later, then, then that would almost be a good problem to have. David, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We have time only for one more question, which is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is, if you were czar for a day, what would you do in the public policy sphere to promote what you've learned in the process of writing this book? So what policies would you perpetuate as a result of uh, writing this book? I think that one of the... Among the many lessons in, in, in going through this process, um, it was it was interesting and educational and, and humbling to chase down the authors and to, to chase down uh, a publisher and, and all the rest. Uh, a related lesson was in how tough it would be to uh, to really bring about the kinds of reforms that are needed because the education system is not only huge and slow moving, but it's also a lot of disparate parts. It's, it's not it's not centralized, and 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 even if one were czar for a day, um, such as czar couldn't couldn't really pull levers in a day or even in a longer period of time that would necessarily have this major effect on on all schools. And so I think my my answer to to your question would relate to our previous um, the, the previous question, which is basically about um, choice parental choice in the education system, because I think the, the solution to this uh, simply can't be centralized, but allowing uh, more, uh, more parental choice in the system and more space for the innovation uh, of charter school leaders and others um, is, would be enormously helpful. And then, obviously, the case has to be made to parents, to charter leaders and others, why the civic education crisis ought to be one of their main focuses, if not their main focus. I think kind of unlocking that innovation, um, which, which some in the political system, thankfully, are already calling for, is, is the most important thing. And then uh, convincing those who are actually free to innovate that, that if we really want to, uh, to perpetuate our political system and, and to continue having, having our blessings, this ought to be done. And, and we ought to give students uh, the feelings of enfranchisement and gratitude and opportunity that, that they need to be healthy citizens. Sounds like a great idea. I hope uh, you can make it happen. You started in your dorm room working on this project, so I have high hopes for your abilities in this sphere. Uh, David Fife, thank you for joining us today on New Books in Public Policy. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I just had with David Feith about civic illiteracy in America and ways to combat it. One of the last questions I asked him was how comfortable he would be with teachers union members being the ones who impart civic education to American students, given that he is a critic of those very same teachers unions as a writer for the Wall Street Journal. And he did answer the question. You can listen to the question and the, and the answer in the podcast. But afterwards, when we were offline, he said to me something else, which is that his proposal would be that there would be a specific exam that high school graduates have to pass. It's called the Challenge 26 Initiative. 
a national challenge to politicians, educators, and parents that all high school graduates be able to pass the U.S. citizenship exam by 2026. Uh, the reason that date is that it's the 250th anniversary of 1776. Also, it's one generation of school children away. But the idea is that all U.S. school children be able to pass the same exact that immigrants who are trying to become U.S. citizens have to pass in their efforts to become citizens of this great country. I think it's a good idea, and I think it gets around the problem that we talked about in the podcast of whether certain individuals might teach American history from their own jaded or propagandistic perspectives. And he talked a little bit about Howard Zinn in specific. But uh, if you have a neutral test, like U.S. citizenship exam, and you make all students pass it, that gets around the problem of who is providing the teaching and you make sure that they just learn the relevant information about how the Founding Fathers came about to create this great country. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad he gave me that additional information about the Challenge 2026 point. And as always, this is Teddy Troy for New Books in Public Policy asking all of you to keep reading.